Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. who is Vice Dean of Humanities and Professor of Jewish Philosophy at Tel Aviv University. His scholarship focuses on the formation of political and religious discourse and their interaction. Professor Loberbaum just completed a study of Hasidism as a model of Jewish religious revitalization in early modernity and his book in, in First Order Jewish Theology. Uh, I Seek Thy Countenance has recently been published by Carmel Barilant and the Hartman Institute. He was a founding member of the Hartman Institute and headed the Beit Midrash there. Professor, thanks for taking time to talk. Hi, everyone. Thank you. So just to jump right in with massive questions you could speak about for hours, uh, but to get a snippet of some of the big uh, ideas here. To start with, what does the Jewish tradition uh, say about the ideal form of government? Um, well, it's the wrong question to ask. <laughs> um, the, I, the notion of an ideal form is very Greek. Um, it's the kind of question that Plato asks. It's a question Plato asks in his Republic in many ways. Um, interestingly, this is not the focal point of the Bible. Whereas both um, Plato and Aristotle are very uh, concerned with the question of what is the best constitution? Um, it seems that the Bible is actually very uh, preoccupied with a completely different question. And that's the question of how do we make sure that sovereigns and kings don't turn themselves into gods? Now, what does this teach us? This teaches us that the Bible is preoccupied actually with human weakness. Rather than asking the question of what is the ideal, it's, it seems that the way of the Torah and the way of, of the prophets has been how to work um, in creating a political environment that is constantly cognizant of human weakness. Um, look, for example, at the book of Samuel. Uh, it's interesting that the book of Samuel, like the book of Genesis, um, changes the focal point. It's like the director has, instead of, look, uh, instead of focusing on the people as a whole, focuses on a particular family. In the case of the book of Samuel, it's David's family. And what is the story about? It's a story about how power corrupts. How the best leader you can find is still faced with the question, of how is he going to deal with his unruly son? Who is he going to pass the kingship to? Who's worthy of it? So I think that there's something um, particularly sobering in the way 
the biblical tradition addresses the question of politics. It doesn't ask about the ideal. It asks about how to work with human weakness. Okay, so given that weakness is so central, wouldn't uh, an ideal or even a, a, satisf uh, you know, a satisfactory form of government be one that was full of checks and balances and transparencies and accountability? Um, well, along the different generations, if you look at Jewish political history and you look at all our important sources, the Bible, the rabbis and the Talmud, the Mishnah, um, the medieval scholars, the Rishonim, you see them constantly trying to figure out what a good balance would be. Um, where is it wise to counter power? Where it is, where is it unwise? How do we work with tyrants, assuming that good leaders and good kings um, um, are capable of actually running themselves. So these are the kind of questions that are constantly being asked. Um, and if you look at our history, we've lived through many different kinds of polities and political structures. Yeah, great, great. So how, how has the foundation of the state of Israel changed the Jewish political tradition? Well, I think in a number of respects, it's the first time um, that we are living in a republic. Um, this is a form of government that we have not experienced before. In fact, the world as a whole has rarely experienced it. If we turn to the United States where you live, I think one of the great contributions of the United States to, um, to human political history has been the notion that you can pass on government from one leader to another without bloodshed. This is news in human history. Before 200 years ago, no one believed that this was possible. No one believed that a democratic, that a democratic government is possible. Now, for Jews, the, the tremendous experience is not only living under this form of government, but actually sharing a form of government after two millennia in which Jews were not sovereign. They had political lives, but not sovereign lives. Not only that, the state of Israel is the state of Jews and many non-Jews. What does it mean? What does it mean to live a Jewish, in a Jewish political society in which um, a good percentage of its citizens and full citizens are not Jewish at all? These are all new questions. We've never had to counter these questions. So how so how do we uh, how does Jewish philosophy make such a leap? Like what what are the tools we we draw upon? Well, we start looking and and trying to draw analogies and try to figure out when did people ask themselves these questions or similar questions? Because if we look, for example, at the medieval Jewish communities, what's um, what is completely characteristic of them is that they have no non-Jewish members. So um, the political meaning of orthodoxy, for example, as, an ide as a Jewish ideology, is hearkening upon the medieval model. Let's create a public space in which there are no non-Jews. Um, that's like, you know, that's like Americans saying, let's create a public space in which no Jews are, are, are present. That's not even an option in modernity. 
Um, and and uh, why the reason I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this this case and this ideology is because here we have probably the most powerfully committed religious uh, religiously committed Jews today, who um, who are not who are not confronting the question of what would happen if my polity would treat me the way I believe a Jewish polity ought to treat non-Jews. So the question is, it isn't even being asked. So part of our problem is not merely looking for the adequate sources, but how do we even uh, begin encouraging committed Jews to serious reflection on the gap between our claims for authority and the power we have? And we do when we do have power. What's the, what's the what's the gap between our claims to authority and the demands of justice? Mm. These are serious, mostly new questions that need first of all articulation before anything else. Great. So you started to touch on this, but why is the discussion of the halachic codification in medieval Jewish society relevant to the Jewish political issues that we're discussing today? Because there's no other, there are no other halachic sources in which we find such fine-tuned reflection upon the nature of political life. Questions of distribution, of taxation, of, of regulating authority. How do you go beyond authority? What happens when people want to use extra legal authority? All these questions are dealt with in a very fine-tuned manner. Um, and um, with a very particular um, goal in mind, and that is the goal of creating a Jewish community that's worthy of being a instance of the Malchut of the Kingdom of Heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's a very unique combination. So, so by the way, so we often say that um, that Israeli Jews or Jews global Jewry has sovereignty today with a Jewish democratic state. But would you say American Jews have sovereignty? American Jews participating in an American democracy, not having full control but a lot of power, is that an act of sovereignty? Um, as American citizens, yes, yeah. definitely. The very meaning of a democracy is that sovereignty ultimately lies with with the demos, with the people, actually in the United States, there's a good case for there's a good uh, uh, there's a good argument to say that it's actually the Constitution that's sovereign. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, but it, it, it the Jews in the United States exercise sovereignty as American citizens and not primarily as Jews. Right. So it seems to me just as interesting and significant that, uh, that almost the same number of American Jews, secular Jews and secular Israelis, more or less, are, are part of this enterprise of sovereignty today. And yet Jewish philosophy oftentimes looks more at Israel as a model than the American Jewish participation. Why do you think that is? Um, well, first of all, it depends on what you count as, as Jewish philosophy. Um, if you look, for example, at the work of Michael Walzer, as a Jewish philosopher, he's reflecting on on his life as an American Jew. Uh, um, You would say the same about Leo Strauss. Uh, But what uh, um, I think what is interesting is that given that the United States is a unique polity in that all American citizens have a hyphenated identity. 
They are African-American. They are Native American. They are Jewish American. You always have hyphenated identities. This enables a great elasticity in one's identity. And therefore, American Jews can often leave the Jewish part of that on that hyphen um, as one in which they imagine themselves as part of a Jewish collectivity that has a center, for example, in Israel today. So it's a very complex structure, and both things happen at the same time. We American Jews are really, in their uh, cultural identity, have many of them have at least two cultures. Mm. Mm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, so do you believe that the Jewish nation state, the state of Israel, is living up to, I'm not going to use the word ideal anymore, but some of our most cherished central values discussed in the Jewish tradition? And should it? Should it be striving to? And what would that look like? Well, I take my cue from, from the prophets. And um, I listen seriously to to Isaiah 1 that we read every year just before Tisha B'Av. And Isaiah tells us in Hebrew, he says, Zion will be redeemed in justice and her, her prisoners um, in, um, in, well, you might say charity, but it's not, it's, it's really another form of justice to that here. And what does this mean? What this means is that justice is the first virtue of social institutions. And this is what the prophet demands. This is what the prophet says in the name of God. And that is the first value according to which a political society is, um, is, uh, um, is judged by. And as an Israeli, um, I've lived here my entire um, mature life. I've served in the IDF. Um, I'm a, a politically active citizen. Um, I find my society deeply lacking. Um, when I see a prime minister indicted for bribery, um, then it's like Isaiah coming, coming alive to me. I hear Isaiah's uh, uh, call in Isaiah 1 saying, your ministers all like, all like bribery. Now, for me, this is the beginning. Now, um, at the same time, why, did, why is this so challenging and so painful in many ways? It's because the state of Israel allows us something that we have not enjoyed for millennia, and that is the possibility to defend ourselves. That's, that is an important task of states. And I think that the big dilemmas that Israel face is the need to defend Jews on the one hand, but to live up to the claims of justice upon us. That is a religious claim upon us. The foundation of the kingdom of heaven of Malchut Shamaim is injustice. Mm. It begins from there. Beautiful. Well, I'm very inspired by that vision, and I think we could talk about that for hours, but I'm afraid we have to pause. Friends, be sure to check out Professor Menachem Lorebaum's books and articles and recordings online. Professor, thanks so much for your time. Thank you.